<laughs> so I the other day I wore like a J Crew shirt and it had two whales on it. Didn't even realize I wore it on the podcast. And some guy emailed in and he goes, dude, you guys got new new whale shirts? Hook me up. It's not even on the I said, Oh no, that's a J Crew shirt. What's with the uh, crystals up there? Which, where? Is that like feng shui? Ben, there's a lot of stuff up there that doesn't really have any rhyme or reason. Like that magnolia bergamot? No, what the hell shit. is that? Did you ever smell this? No. How would I smell it? Are you into scented candles? The way I am? It smells good. Do you like candles in your house? It smells very good. Ben doesn't use candles. No way. Ben doesn't drink coffee or use I, candles. My wife's a candle person. I don't. By know. the way, that is the most contrarian move. Who drinks Diet Pepsi? Literally. Diet Pepsi is my thing. I know. Diet I know. Pepsi is better than Diet Coke. I agree with that. What's what's contrarian about Diet I'll Pepsi? Die on that Nobody hill. drinks Diet Pepsi. This guy. I love it. Uh, I don't I don't drink Diet Coke. You drink Diet Pepsi too? Uh-huh. Hmm. So Robin Hood is not rallying into the Diet course. Diet the Coke. Happening. Diet Coke does not taste anything like regular Coke. Diet Pepsi tastes exactly like regular Pepsi. Diet right. Coke is very distinct from the product that it's a diet. Although I will of. say the best Diet Coke in the world is at McDonald's. That's a fact. I think it's. I think it's. I think it's the. Um, it might be the syrup, but I think it's probably the straw. I think it's the French fried grease. It's the straw, right? It's got a big. No, straw. It's, it's the mix. Somehow the mix they have there is better than any mix anywhere else. The syrup to water ratio at McDonald's is the best. You think they turn it up a little bit? I don't know. It's got something about it. It's, it's way better than anywhere else you go. They don't water it down as much. Diet probably. Coke has its. McDonald's has its own formulation of Diet Coke. But sure, isn't that sure. isn't that like, it's like how Guinness is better in, in Ireland? No, wait a second. I was just watching uh, American Gangster, and you know how Denzel gets pissed at Cuba Gooding Jr. because he f's around with the Blue Magic. Oh yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. Coca Cola should have the same thing. You can't mess with their formula. Unless Don't you think it comes pre-made? You really think McDon- You really think McDonald's could d- turn the dial up? I think they buy so much, such a high volume, that they are specifically fed by a certain portion of. Of Coca-Cola. They get the high octane. And I think it's like slightly different. What was the Michael Keaton movie about Ray Kroc? Remember? They oh, talked the about how yeah, Coke Dude, was Me- like their first p- partner. Mexican Coke is different than U.S. Coke. Like it's not, it's a formula, but it's not completely uniform. I just feel like course. it's theirs. But okay, so maybe it's different from McDonald's. That's a fair point. Also, typically <laughs> when you're drinking it, you're eating a lot of salty shit with it. That's true. You, you're probably not, but like. Yes, he is. What do you mean? Are you, were you eating French fries? Ben's a big fast food guy. Oh, you are? All right. Although we had we went to Parm today for lunch. You ever been to Parm? Yeah. Best hero in the city. Yeah, it's pretty good. Ben took the top bun off. When you eat Chick-fil-A, you eat it without I prefer, bread? I prefer ch- well the bread was like this big. I know, I know. But I'm just saying, do you eat Chick-fil-A without you bread? Said, try, try the veal, it's the best in the city. <laughs> yeah, I took I took Yeah, that's that's the secret. You eat the chicken no bread. The secret to what? Just saying fit. Mm. No that's, carbs. That's the, that's the whole secret. I could yeah. do that. Uh no carbs I, during the week. So I th- I think that I think that most people think it's the opposite. Most people would think like just don't eat the chicken parm. By the way, all right. So that's the bell. It just don't eat the chicken parm. Yeah, not easier said than done. Thirty four seventy four. How much is it? Da- how much is it down on the day? Like eight, what's the percent? Eight point four percent. Because because we're not points guys here. That's right. Eight point four percent. All right. So my prediction was like fifty. I was way, way off. Ben, what, what did I thing, what did I say this morning? What the stock would do. Ben, ben goes to me before when we got back from lunch. Robinhood, what do you think the what do you think it is? I said down eleven percent. It was down nine. 
Not to brag. No, that's, that's, you said it's going to finish below thirty, though. But that was my that was my ludicrous call. But finished. Ex- it finished down eight point three seven percent is the official. So down three dollars eighteen cents. I nailed the open. Why'd you say eleven percent? What does that mean? You just made that number up. Ben said, "What do you think it's trading down?" Just a right guess. Now. I said down eleven percent, and it was down nine. So I w- I would have thought like a ten plus point gain, and I would have thought that it. Ha- but it, it wasn't it wasn't a genius call I made. Like the the what was the the range thirty eight to forty two. And they opened at 38. I that's mean, a bad sign. That's a bad sign. Yeah. So, so I'm surprised you went the other way. Did you not know that? No, I don't know anything. I did because I got Are you new here? shares. Are you new here? Uh, the bad sign is, hey, we got plenty of stock for retail. <laughs> that's a, To me, that's the, that's the bad omen. And in this case, they did it very uh, deliberately, right. which I think, I think they did the right thing. Um, we just start the show. You're still, you're still walking around futzing with the, the set. What does that thing do? Ben's, ben hasn't been here for this. I have to pick out the wall color. <laughs> Duncan is rocking solo today because usually John is here. And John is at the White Lotus. I know. It's amazing. That's amazing. Good for him. He's in Hawaii. I don't know where he is, but he's Have there. you been to Hawaii? Yes, I have. And I was talking to Duncan just before. I don't want to go back for like 20 years because I have such incredible memories for it that I don't want to dilute those memories. I don't need to go back. I went on a helicopter ride in Hawaii. So, me too. I over cried. The, over I, the volcano? I got off and I threw up. I cried. Really? I had like, uh, well, I got emotional because I went to the place where they filmed Jurassic Park with the waterfall and it took me back to my childhood. Oh, that's where they filmed Jurassic Park. That's right. Uh, what, what, what island is that? Uh, Kauai, I think. Well, okay. So I didn't, I was at Maui and I was in Kona for our honeymoon and I don't want to go back because I don't want to do the flight again. Was, that's we, fair. It's fine. We did a direct flight. To the big island from Newark. Oh, wow. how far was it? Twelve? Ten and a half hours. Yeah, we sat first class. We took a bunch of like sleeping pills, and it didn't work. So I ended up watching uh, whatever the movies were on the plane, and it was like Pirates of the Caribbean one, two, and three or something. It was. Not, I don't want to. I don't want to repeat that journey. Remember, this is pre Netflix, pre uh, devices. You could watch movies on. I love Hawaii. So, um, you watch the show, Ben? We we were talking about it on Tuesday night. I said I think the third episode is the best one so far. It's getting good, right? Yeah, I like it. So, all right, you ready to go? The Comhub and Friends. <laughs> David O. Russell. <laughs> Very nice. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. What do Michael Batnick, Ben Carlson, and Jay-Z have in common? We're all very good on the mic and we all invest in blue chip art, but unlike Mr. Carter... Ben and I don't have tens of millions of dollars to invest in a Basquiat like Jay-Z. So we use masterworks.io instead, the premier art investing platform. Contemporary art prices rose 14% on average per year from 1995 to 2020 with very little correlation to equities. Basquiat's average historical return is over 19% based on data collected by masterworks.io. So go to masterworks.io and start investing today. See disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. 
All right, welcome to the Compound and Friends, and we have a very special friend here today, Ben Carlson. He and Ben so is—he looks so cute. He looks adorable. Ben uh, is an official member of the Compound. You're not even an end friend. You're part of the Compound, so we have no friends today, I guess. And Duncan's a, an official member of the oh, Compound. The, sur- too. the survey says that people are losing their friends. So F- fair. Uh, all right. So this is uh, this is, I think, going to be a day that we remember for a long time because Robin Hood. One of the most talked about topics in our industry, um, maybe in the whole country over the last year or so, finally went public. And it was not particularly well received, but it's also not a bloodbath. They priced at the lower end of the range, $38. They opened it around $12.30. It immediately touched $40 and then has been falling ever since. But again, not terrible, $34.82. If you're Snoop Dogg and you own the stock at 20 cents, you're fine. <laughs> if you're an early investor in any of the venture rounds, you're fine. If you're an insider, you, you're, you feel okay. What if, if, what if what if you're that guy? If you're Ben if, Carlson, I don't guy? know. Uh, so first of all, you got shares in, uh, in Robinhood pre-IPO. How did that happen? How did that work? This was an experiment for me. I did you don't this, do this. I did this. Yeah, I, never. I did this for the show. Okay. Thank so, you. We appreciate it. So they had this new IPO access thing. You put in that you want to get some of their shares, right? And they give you a price range. So okay. this range was thirty-eight to forty-two. Really bad sign when they said all your shares got <laughs> filled at thirty-eight. <laughs> Never want to hear that because it also gave you a twenty percent buffer. If it went twenty percent above or below those, then it, uh, well, at least above, then you you wouldn't get it because it wouldn't want to give you too high of a price. Right. So so so, how, so when you got your shares, do you find out immediately or? Does the stock open and then they say, oh, you're in? I put it in two days ago and then this morning it said you had allocated. And I was going to wimp out yesterday and cancel. I'm like, this, I don't do this stuff, whatever. It's my Robinhood account. It's, I'm having fun. And Michael said, no, 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 no. keep it in for <laughs> yeah, the keep content. It, keep it in. Wait, so did you get a full, you got the full allocation? The full that you allocation asked for, at the right. low end of the range. So that's why I'm like, okay, this thing is not going to trade well today. Okay. There's no way if the retail is getting at the lower end of the range that it's going to do well. Now, they told their their users who got shares in the IPO, that if they want to be in contention to get shares in future IPOs, they have to hold the stock and not sell it. Um, is that your plan? Do you, do you want to do more of this? Wait, now for, how long? for how long? No, my plan was to sell this at, after a 30% pop. Yeah, that didn't work out. Well, no, here's, so here's the, I was going, this was a, this was an evidence-based approach Take on my L. part. Take the L. <laughs> no, I'm taking, I, I, trust me, I've already, I'm never going to financially recover from this. <laughs> to quote the Tiger King guy. So historically, you get like a 30% pop on average first day of IPO. And then over the next three to five years, you underperform by 30% and it levels out basically. Right. That's what it's like. That's, that's where all the return comes from the IPO is you get in at the IPO price and then it pops and then you sell. How about this? Another piece of historical data that is now rendered completely useless. Well, they interviewed the guy from NASDAQ today and asked him if he's like disappointed or whatever. Um, I guess whoever's in charge of opening the deal and- he was basically like a third of these deals open down. It doesn't mean anything. And you can point to Facebook and say, all right, that was one of the most disastrous IPOs ever. And then you made, I don't know, 8X on your money or something if like if you lived through it. So I don't- 100 million shares traded today of, of, of uh, Robinhood, by Do the you way. think they missed their window for if they did this three months ago? February. Would have gotten way more- For sure. February. Yeah. But by they the way, weren't so- ready. They still had fines they had to uh, settle. Like they were they were- they were not in a position to do this until now. I think they weren't sleeping on it, but yeah, 
Like, this would have been way more well-received. So, 100 million shares for Robinhood today. SPY did 42 million. Apple did 85 million by comparison. So, tons of volume. Closing market cap of 29 billion. It's big. <laughs> not, it's, well, it's not that big. Coinbase. Come on. Coinbase, 61 billion. Not only are you wrong, Ben, you're so wrong. Wrong about what? Ben said, go ahead. What did you say? I said Robinhood is going to be bigger than Coinbase. You did? And well, I'm pretty, it might, it might, not that, today. So no, at, the, at the IPO, and I'm pretty sure he did one of these. I said he this, pounded the table. He said, told me to timestamp it, which I did. Six months ago, probably I said Robinhood's going to be bigger than Coinbase. Si- oh, six months ago, yeah. I probably would have. I probably would have said the same. I do think there's some similarities between the companies. So, if you think about like what Wall Street's going to want from this company, their earnings are gonna be, or revenue is going to be all over the place, right? It's going to be really great one quarter and crappy the next, and that's the same thing with Coinbase, though, right? It's, they're going to be kind of similar. Companies this that they're going to be really right, volatile. It's trading volumes and trading volumes are not going to be consistent from one quarter to the next. But that is seventy five percent of their revenue. What do we think that the street is going to judge them on? User growth. User growth. Memes. So, well, but I do think because I think that the rev- I think I think that the street will look past their revenue growth. If it's like a quiet quarter, I think it's going to be all about user growth. The street is not going to give them credit for a quarter where like options trading was big because that's expected. And they don't do and, that and for other brokerage firms that are publicly and traded. And it's transitory. It's always, well, it really is like literally transitory. So they're going to look for user growth. It's a business of ups and downs. But if they can go from $22 million to $30 million, then definitely this thing could add $10 billion to market. Okay, but I, so I do think that $30 billion, like that's reasonable. They have that, they, 30 million people. Uh, $30 billion market cap. It, well, it's there right now. I'm saying, no, but that can grow. Like that is reasonable. I think they, I think they can grow that. So Ben's IPO shares, buy, sell, hold. I would hold it if I were you. If you're already in the hole, eight percent, what do you have to lose? I'm <laughs> Besides out. the other hundred percent, I'd be out. I'd be out because you you did this as a goof. Like you're not looking. Like, do you really want to be an investor in Robinhood? I mean, it's a hundred shares. Who kids? Who who cares? But I'd be out. I would not. I would not be out because I think there's going to be a slew of um, very good research reports from the street and high price targets because a lot of important firms have a lot on the line here, and. I, I just I feel I feel like a lot of people that have been waiting to sell it got a chance to sell it today. How's this? Yeah, there had to be a lot of people who said I'm selling immediately yeah. when I can. Robin Hood. So that, so that happened to Rob- 100 million shares. Do we, like, do we think so, there's a lot more of that? So this is a Michael point. I'm stealing. Wait, it, before you get before you steal my point. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> Robin Hood is going to trade like Twitter. It's going to be a constant uh, investor headache over the next five years. Oh, I could picture that. Like, That's in other possible. words, every time it looks like it's about to break out. It's going to gap down 14%. Well, one of the things that I, I just would normally say with something like this is, like, let's say you wanted to be an investor in it. You're probably not that price sensitive anyway. So why wouldn't you wait for the first report as a public company? Let's say you have to buy it at 40. That's the price you pay. Like, let's just see if they can even do this right and not come out of the gates missing earnings expectations. Who are the buyers? Like, obviously, Arc F. Like, I, I forget who said that. Kathy Wood's going to buy this. Who else? Is, who are the natural buyers? For I'm pretty like right. This? I'm pretty sure she'll come out of the woodwork at some point. Well, there's got to be a ton and, of and new I, uh, ETFs. This is going to fit the bill for right. Any sort yeah, of they're not that big. Niche, well, all the thematic ETFs are going to want to own Robinhood, fintech, right? Fintech ETFs, but they're not that big. Probably, probably Arc. I don't know the main fund, but like. Well, after today, it's going to be, be all, a, all the deep value funds. Right, exactly. It'll, <laughs> yeah, Berkshire's taking a 10% stake. <laughs> RKF and, 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 and RK. Ben, alley up me. What's all my right. take? So the VC is pouring into this lately because they wanted to get in before the IPO. 
they're stealing the first day pop. Yeah, well, that's been going on for a while now. So Ben and I spoke about that this morning, and Matt Levine wrote about it uh, as well, that when I said historical data was rendered useless, if these companies are going to be bringing shares to retail and there's more demand like or more supply, I guess, pre-IPO, then shouldn't the pop be compressed? Isn't that like a reasonable conclusion? Yes, because the people that are price insensitive and just want in – if they can get in prior to the opening tick and they they don't care what you're selling it to them at, that is the pop. Now, now the question is, how big is this group? Like, why is Robinhood going to get a big piece of future IPOs? It might not be enough to move the needle. They said So they said their customers, this is the Wall Street Journal, said their customers got 20 to 25% of this one they thought could go up to 35%. So maybe the their customers didn't want it as much as they thought. But forget, put Robinhood to the side. Yeah, like, how, in other words, how does Robinhood muscle its way into yes. the in, you know to the table for a deal that Goldman or J.P. Morgan yeah, or Morgan Stanley or lead underwriting, they could come to the table and say, "Hey guys, we're democratizing finance." No, they could say, "Listen, we've got Muppets." Not to not to be uh, you know too rude, but like our clients will pay anything. Yeah, I don't I don't know <laughs> if they would say that <laughs> because somebody will write that down. I don't think it's a good idea. Um, this is a Bloomberg article: uh, largest decline for an IPO of its size since Uber. Things didn't work out so terribly for Uber. It's above its IPO price. But here's what Bloomberg says. Shares in the broker behind the meme stock revolution fell as much as 12% below the IPO price. Puts the stock in the running to rank as the worst debut on record among U.S. firms that raised as much cash as Robinhood or more. Big deal. What are those? What's the list of 10? What did they raise? $2 billion? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. The, the, the list is pretty small because IPOs are getting bigger these days. What? I mean, the Airbnb IPO day was pretty good, I think. Wasn't great. Coinbase was a horror show because somebody paid 400 something on the opening tick. So that one couldn't, I don't know. This just doesn't seem that catastrophic. No, to me. not at all. It doesn't seem that bad. So I this would, is a win for Eugene Fama. Why? Because it didn't have a 30% pop and it didn't fall 30%. Uh, it's yeah. a relatively efficient price. Oh, the market was efficient in yeah. opening it where it opened it? Ish. Do you think that they have a whole slew of announcements they can't wait to make that are going to get people excited? Like maybe we're going to add sports gambling to the, uh, I don't to the think, platform. I feel like they're going to sell weed. I don't think I don't they know. have anything in their chamber. I feel like they show they show their hand. Really? They probably have a lot of fines coming up too. But I'm I'm making I have no evidence for that. But like, what do you think about what do you think about the news yesterday that they're being investigated because the CEO never bothered getting a Series Seven? I don't understand how that <laughs> came at that came down to the last day. That's like when my it's my public my, information. Why does he need time. it? Why but does he need it though? It's 18 hours before the IPO. He needs it if he's substantially involved in the day to day operations on the brokerage side. He Is does. He? Yeah. Well, I'm telling you what lawyers who commented in the articles about this said, so I'm not a lawyer, obviously. I know a lot of people sometimes think that I am. I'm really not. But the lawyers are like, it depends on his level of involvement in the in the brokerage side, like whether or not he has to be licensed. How come when we're talking about law, somebody always has to say, I'm not a lawyer? Like if you're talking about running, you don't say like, I'm not an athlete. Well, because I'm saying like a legal opinion. No, I'm, I'm not saying you specifically. I'm just saying everyone. We all say, I'm not a lawyer. No. Because you know why? It would it would almost be like giving medical advice and someone's like, what medical school did you go to? Oh, I didn't. Like it it's, sounds as stupid, I guess. So maybe that's why people just preemptively do that. That's why I do that. Um, as a broker, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think that's a big issue, but I, I do agree that a lot of the stuff with payment for order flow is going to get a second look and it might not be able to do it as profitably as they were able to do it in 2020. 
What do I, you, I think that ship sailed. I don't think I think we're going back. I don't think we're going back, but I think it's more will be more heavily regulated. Isn't that like a isn't that like a consensus take? Like, can you can you possibly imagine another free for all? Regulated what? So they need they with the more disclosure or what? What are they going to do? No, you have there's tons of disclosure. Nobody reads disclosure. They might make it less profitable by just forcing. How about this? How about this? Uh, give forcing best execution. Give users the option to route it to the New York Stock Exchange and say, do you want to pay four ninety five for this trade? Yeah, I agree. Uh, nobody would. Nobody. Right. Who cares? I don't think investors care. I, I absolutely don't. So this whole crusade about like people getting pissed at Robinhood for like not giving – honestly, if, if I get a penny filled higher, I don't care. No, you, you don't even know. And and that's – so that's why I think it's it's probably not going to go back. But I still think it's going to be something that they'll they'll probably – be listening to people complaining about it for a long time. And by people, I mean politicians. Uh, are we done on Robinhood? Is there anything else that we want to say? Is there anything else that we were supposed to uh, uh, say on this topic? What do you think? Only my children can't go to college now. Other than that, we're good. Well, <laughs> just, you should, I have an idea. I got it. I'm not a lawyer, but short 100 right, don't shares. Don't be a fucking dick about it. <laughs> short 100. Because <laughs> now I'm going to preface every statement I make with what I'm not. Short 100 shares just to be hedged. Okay. So lock in the loss, but don't sell. Okay. I'm not an archer who lives in Sherwood Forest, but I would say <laughs> I would just say that if you had to give a letter grade to Robin Hood's debut as a publicly traded company, C plus. C plus or B minus. They, because in the end, this is still a thirty billion dollar company with a CEO who's not registered to be in the business that literally just settled one of the largest fines ever. With its regulator, Not so and they still managed to come public uh, with a debut where a hundred million shares change hands. So I don't think you can call this a loss. No way uh, for anyone except for Ben. Uh, to be to be quite frank. All right, let's keep it. Uh, let's keep it moving. Where are we going next, Mike? We are going to technology stocks. Oh yeah, we have to do we, this. Listen, I know, like we. We talk so much about these names. How can we not? It's the whole market. It's the whole market. It's all, almost all that matters right now, and it won't always be that way. So let me just let me just set this up. This is Felix Salmon at Axios. As recently as 2017, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, and Google combined were worth less than two trillion. Wait, as of when? 17. Because now they're 10. Hold on. Today, Apple and Microsoft are both worth more than that alone. Wow. And the five biggest tech giants are collectively worth 9.3 trillion. The four companies reporting this week, and we and we didn't even get Amazon. Um, so far generated an astonishing $250 billion in profit over the last 12 months. Ten years ago, when they all mostly looked identical to how they look today, their profits were less than $58 billion. Right. So these companies generated an excess $200 billion in profit over the last decade above and beyond where they were. Above and beyond their market cap. Is that what they're saying? Is yeah. No. Uh, okay. Like their profits 10 years ago, those uh, the four companies that reported this week – we're fifty-eight billion now. They're two hundred and fifty billion. Mm. So is that a quintuple? So it's almost like the stock market is reflecting reality of their businesses. If we would have modeled this out in a spreadsheet ten years ago, nobody would have believed you. No way. Said this is the growth. This is what's going to go to. These are the market caps. No way that could ever happen. Well, they or they would have said it's going to be the biggest investment bubble in history. No, you know what? It would have been like, yeah, okay. So everybody in the world is going to have seven iPhones. Um, that's what that's what would have had to happen for for Apple. So this to is this, this is from Ned Davis. They show the market cap of the fan mag stocks is now bigger than all value sectors combined. So that's energy, materials, industrials, and financials. The, those these six stocks are bigger than all those combined. Yeah, justified. So, 
Well, so then you look, but then you go to the reports and you ask yourself, where should these stocks trade? These are companies doing like hundred billion dollars in revenue and growing twenty percent, growing or faster more. than twenty percent yeah. with fifty percent, forty three percent gross margins it's for absurd. Apple. It's absurd. These how, are these how are, could that even exist? So do, here's where investors potentially get in trouble, like trying to get the second tier of these ones and assuming mm. they can do this. Are, are these ones just complete outliers? In, and, and NVIDIA, then, NVIDIA came along. They weren't part of FANG five years ago. I think they took Netflix's place. But do you think any of these next level ones? No. Yes. No, can, no, no. Can no. They, I'm saying, no, can they Can they do this? I don't think so. Can they get this? Can we say, okay, well, who's going to be the next trillion dollar company? Salesforce is in the fucking Dow. We never talk about it. Uh, Oracle is on fire because they got very serious about the cloud. And they already have the biggest installed base Hold of on, large but corporations. You're answering, you're answering a different question. I think, Ben, what is your question? These, These can be new fangs. I'm saying that we have this second tier and people are looking at like $100 billion companies now saying, okay, this one's going to be a trillion dollar company too. Is that really going to happen? We're going to have all these other five or 10 more companies get to that level? Yes. All right. All right. Let me back up. What do you think Adobe's market cap is right now? Take a guess. 300. Don't cheat. 300 billion. It's not that far off. It's, I'm right. It's, it's where, I mean, that's, that's where these stocks were three years ago in okay, 2018. Okay, that doesn't seem that, but that's a 3X from here. That's a big return. We just saw Apple add $800 billion yeah, but, in market cap in a year. Yeah, but I don't think these are, no, yeah, justify All right, where do, what do you think PayPal's market cap is? I know it's around the same, like 250, 300. It's bigger than JP Morgan. Uh, four, is it? It's 400. But so. I'm saying for a company that size to have a, another 3X return, I don't, I don't see it. I'm saying, you, I'm saying if that happens. If you look at the total adjustable market and you see, like, like PayPal is a good example. I don't know what percentage of like, Every transaction on Earth they have. Well, what I time, can't imagine it's more than one percent. Time frame. Time frame. Are you talking in the next decade? Or Wait, the next I'm not a total addressable market, but how big is this shit going to get? Right. Like, well, if they continue to to eat into the GDP of all of these countries, I'm just saying, if this happens, then we could have another six bubble. or seven years of really decent to good gains. The, in the reason market. why I don't think that PayPal and Adobe and Salesforce can be in the same category. And I'm not saying that you, that they can, that you're saying they can is because Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft are all a huge part of our daily lives. Michael, Microsoft seven years ago was irrelevant. They completely reinvented fine, take, it overnight. Fine. Okay, fine. Take Microsoft out of the equation. Apple, <laughs> It's the second biggest company. Fine, uh, fine. Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google are all in our lives Stipulated. every single Stipulated. day. Stipulated. Is Venmo not? No. Really? No, I use it once a month. Okay, Salesforce is in our businesses daily okay. life. Okay, All right. And that's why it's trading where it is. Uh, Alphabet, YouTube revenues. I want to talk about that. Seven billion in the quarter, up over 80% year over year, which is ludicrous. So listen to this. So YouTube is about to pass Netflix. Yeah. In revenue. Yeah. And I think one of the takeaways from this is how profitable advertising is versus a – and the subscription model is fantastic, obviously. Well, YouTube has both now. But look at YouTube. Yeah. Well, let me say this. On the call, which I listen to on the Quarter app, which I love. Oh, they do have the subscription. I forgot about that. YouTube they have TV. YouTube TV yeah. and they have YouTube premium, whatever. They made the case on the conference call that there are consumers, like millions of consumers, for whom – there literally is no other way for an advertiser to reach them but YouTube. They're not listening to the radio. They don't have telev they don't have traditional television. Um, they don't obviously read anything in print. Like if you want to reach that consumer, it's YouTube or nothing. I hope. And I believe them. 
I can't wait till the time where they can do the Olympics on YouTube and it's on demand, so we don't have to look for it on do your Peacock. Kids and- watch, do your kids have YouTube on, on on TVs in the house anywhere? They they have, but I mean, they their TVs are their iPads. So my so my daughter has YouTube and Netflix and does literally does not know how to access FiOS cable. <laughs> right, she doesn't kids- know what channel any show is on. If it's not on Netflix, she doesn't care about it. And most of the time, she'd rather just let the YouTube algorithm continue to play Drake videos. My four-year-olds ask, what is this when a commercial comes on the regular TV? They don't know. Yeah. Because, they, yeah, YouTube's – so you mentioned, too, like the – back in the day, what is that? We're going to buy seven iPads or iPhones. Right. So I have an iPad from 2014 probably still. But iPad revenue last quarter was $7.4 billion. Yeah. If you annualize that and it's close to 30, I know it doesn't work like Wait, that. Wait, last quarter? Yeah, $7.4 billion in that, that quarterly report. Just selling just selling screens. So let's, let's annualize that. I know it doesn't work that smoothly. It's it's whatever, $30 billion. Netflix is trailing 12 months. Revenue is $28 billion. <laughs> uh, so the iPad is bringing in tech, probably more revenue than Netflix. Did you see That's the app? Insane. Did you see the Apple Watch numbers? They have... They have iPhone users coming in in droves to the stores to test drive the watches and buy them. It's like unexpectedly becoming as hot as the AirPods. Like the watch is becoming a very big product. On Every itself. one of those, I said, I'm never going. Why would I want this? Dude, I, I have, have it all now. I have one on each wrist just, just to be safe. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, they're going to sell a ton of watches. They've been selling a ton of AirPods. Every one of these products they sell locks you in deeper to that ecosystem and I think the only bear case you can make on the stock is that they might fumble the ball with an iPhone launch or somebody might somebody might politically get very involved in the iOS take rate for the app store. Mm-hmm. And they might just say this is this is an illegal monopoly. But th- that kind of stuff takes years to play out. I don't see it as like a near term threat to the stock. And that's why it seems effortlessly to just be adding tens of billions of dollars to its valuation. And I almost like. I almost want it to stop and calm down because it's become so extreme. I don't know. Like- I feel like the, this, a lot of this move happened in the past three weeks. Like we were talking from over the last year that Apple and Amazon, they're just going sideways. And when it moves, it moves. When they break out, they go. Uh, all right. Anything worth saying on uh, anything worth saying on any of these uh, that we haven't covered? I think we, we talked a lot about this. I'm, I don't know. I, I'm astonished. I wonder if they'll get to a third of the market. They're about 26%. 22. You could have. In September, Apple fell twenty percent, and then in March it fell eighteen percent. So like these stocks still get hammered occasionally, out of nowhere, and and every time they come back. One more thing I want to add, and I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but if they keep growing at the rate that they're growing, and the market keeps growing at the rate that the market is growing, I think in like seven years these companies are going to be like fifty-seven percent of the market, and in ten years are going to be seventy-five percent. So. So, I don't want to say something has to give because if we've learned anything, nothing has to give. Yeah. But I kind of Didn't feel one like of you guys to- do the post about the last time we saw this much concentration in the U.S. stock market? When- well, back in the 60s. It was like AT&T and it, GE. The top 10 were 50 or 60%. So this has happened. Yes, with a conglomerate era. I it- think AT&T and GE were like 16% of the S&P. Now, that didn't end well, but it never ends well. So that's. But if they're at. 35% in a few years, that wouldn't shock you. Not at all. It wouldn't It wouldn't shock me, but I I really feel that there's going to be a next generation behind them that becomes that become bigger. It doesn't mean that these companies will have to slow down, 
I just can't picture it being five stocks is forever. That, but is that good? Like, does this not stifle innovation like and competition? Um, I don't know because because you could make the argument that Apple has plenty of competition. It's just overseas. They, I mean, they compete with Android for a user base, and they compete on devices everywhere in China, in Europe. Like, it's not like they're doing. They're the only phone company. They're just very, very sticky with the people that start buying their products. They don't leave. And by the way, everyone has a friend who says, you know, Android phones are actually better than iPhones. I'm going to show you why. And you go, Dude. guess what? I'm not including on my text anymore because your text box is green. Yeah, no, I don't I do not do the green text. You I, know, uh, I assume it's I And we're going to get spam. emails from people who say, Android is better. You know, and I'll tell you why. You know Star Belly Snooches, the Dr. Seuss book? Okay. Like one group of has star bellies and the, yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. like the person with the green with the green on their phone. <laughs> contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. It's just like the green. They mean they make they like pariahs. Well, once they once they made these phones a subscription product through the carrier versus you have to give us seven hundred dollars. I mean now they're twelve hundred dollars, but I think that 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 allowed the ecosystem to get even bigger because people are enumerate and they're like, oh, this I could afford this. Well, you know what could feel more growth is the buy now pay later. If you could get an Apple phone and pay 60 bucks a month yeah. to them, like interest-free or whatever, pay a little bit of interest, I feel like that That can, is what – they already have that. I know. I'm saying they're going to swim downstream as well. Um, get more people. I'll give, you, I'll give you one more quick bear case. China has become very important to Apple, and the sands are shifting beneath everybody's feet. And I highly doubt that this economic cold war can go much further without somebody in Beijing saying – you know how we really f with people. Apple's ten percent of their stock market. Let's make it harder for them to sell blank. Yeah, we don't care. We just crashed our own stock. Market. Remember, they just crashed their own market. Remember, twenty thirteen, like the bear case was for Apple. Was it's over owned, over loved. Everybody owns. Everybody who wants to buy Apple owns Apple. Yo, the bear case was that it's index money pushing it up, <laughs> and it's just like people pouring money into ETFs, and that's why Apple's going up. No. Maybe it's because Artists Apple. Share. Maybe it's because Apple has two hundred fifty billion dollars to do buybacks with, as far as the eye can see. Uh, and by the way, we didn't even get into that. Uh, uh, the cash balance is there. All right, let's let's keep going. All right. So uh, was this from Reckenthaler? I believe it was. He did this from Morningstar. He did this post on Liquid Alternatives. Ben, this is near and dear to your heart. Uh, this is wild. During the during the last decade. Liquid alternative funds average an annualized gain of 1.6% behind every fund category, uh, except for like uh, energy and precious metals. I feel like short-term bonds would have done better. So it was, a, it was an alternative to making so money. So 1.6% was the annual return. What do you think the average fee was? Uh, over 2%. 1.6%. Okay. So investors Shut up. and fund owners- How much split, money is in these? Split it 50-50. Not as much as there used to be. There was 453 liquid alts uh, that were launched since 2009. Only 153 are still around. You know how I knew this category was was basically, you know, a giant piece of shit. I'm sorry. I apologize to everybody. Anytime I wrote anything critical about liquid alts, my inbox when I used to have a public email would absolutely explode with people defending it. Something that's good doesn't require defense, right? So I did this big thing about Natixis and they did they did like a liquid alt product and the pitch was like, this is the answer to every problem, works in every environment. And then you look at like six, seven year track record, it doesn't work in any environment. And that was one of the more popular ones. I don't even know what the biggest liquid alts are now, but nothing really seems to have changed. Well, the thing that 
Michael and I always talk about is can these things actually survive a bull market? Like everyone wanted them after 2008 because, oh, I can hedge the downside in Black Swan. And yeah, and yeah, they reckon Thaler said 453 funds have been launched since 2009. 153 exist See? today. This guy doesn't listen to me. Said so, 30 wait, seconds wait, wait, ago. Wait, wait, wait. So. <laughs> So two Josh, th- you see what you gotta deal with on the podcast? Yeah, he was he was checking his email. So two <laughs> so two thirty he was, was checking for- he was checking after hours Robin Hood quotes. <laughs> Excuse Did me, it- I need to do some hedging <laughs> trades. Ben has it bounced. So <laughs> two thir- thirds of the liquid alt funds that have launched since two thousand nine are gone already. So I would guess that those weren't the good track records. So here's here's the thing. To Ben's point, and we discuss this all the time, if you can't survive a bull market, you're in big, big trouble. Um, but Reckon Thaler wrote, liquid alternatives are hard to own. The elaborateness of their strategies makes them unpredictable, which tends to upset shareholders. Losing money is one thing, but losing money unexpectedly without knowing why is quite another, end quote. So I listened to a, uh, a webinar or earnings call or whatever uh, from one of these liquid alts, probably in 2014, 2015. And one of the big sources of negative returns for that quarter was the short position that they had on in sugar. Could oh, you, that makes perfect sense. Could you imagine explaining that to a client? Well, I was going to ask you, what percentage of the money in liquid alts is advisor-directed? 100%. 100%. Right. Because the institutions are not going to – they're not going to be in this wrapper. They're going straight to the fund. And there's no retail investor that's like, I want a liquid alt. No. Like th- so if so if you're the, the, middle, the middle person, the intermediary in that equation, you have to call up your clients and be like – you know, why is this, why is this thing down six quarters in a row? What happened this time? Uh, they're short sugar. So it's tough if something like this is 5% of your allocation and it's a hundred percent of the questions that you're, that you're answering. All right, but are these the things that these are harder to replicate quantitatively? And if you want to invest in a hedge fund strategy, you actually have to invest in a hedge fund manager who will take concentrated bets and use leverage and do these things that are probably even bigger risks, but those are the only ones that are going to pay off. You have to get lucky, pick the right manager at the right time, and then know when to exit because none of these strategies can consistently deliver anything. Well, why don't why did these stop? Nor can, by the way, nor can beta. It just so happens we're living in the best decade ever for stock market beta. Why, it won't always be this way. Why have returns been so bad for the for these strategies? I know we're using a catch-all. There's a, this, you know, there's a dozens. It's, of- it's kind of not fair because of how many different things these funds are trying to do. But I don't even think there are any standouts. Uh, it's also tough when the S&P just had its best risk-adjusted return 10-year period like ever. Well, so that's that's why I think that's a big contributing factor is what it's being compared against. But 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 the other side is when, when you lose to short-term bonds, well, you have some explaining to do. Yeah. Even with all these categories, market neutral and event-driven and macro and multi-strategy, there's 11,000 hedge funds competing against these, and they do similar strategies. Like this, Maybe this stuff has just been figured out by these places, and it's arbed away. Did any of these look great? during the 15-minute bear market last March? Like, did any of them have, like, a really killer week even? I, I don't remember. I don't remember reading about any of them. I definitely I, – I don't recall. I definitely Maybe the Black, the Black Swan funds probably well, for, well, for stuff a few probably, minutes. Tell, tell risk worked, obviously. Well, it tell probably risk. happened too fast even for the trend-following stuff, right? Because the trends weren't – we didn't have any trends in place because it happened so fast. Yeah, so those, by the time well, they yeah. moved in, it was probably too late. If you were looking at anything shorter than a month – you might have been able to do something there tactically, but let's let's assume ninety nine percent of these funds I think, weren't. I think managed futures had a good twenty twenty. Let me just let me just carry on. Let me just take a peek. All right. So I look. I I don't think that let the concept behind liquid alts is as bad as maybe is being made out. I think some of the problem here is in the execution. 
And Ben, to your point, maybe you really do need to be an LP in a hedge fund to capture some of these potential returns. Like maybe it just doesn't work in this wrapper. Look at this chart of a managed future strategy. It, it was it held it held amazing in the downturn, uh-huh. amazing. It was flat for the year. S and P was up sixteen, but it kept you in the game. There was so there was no drawdown, but there was there was, there was no return. return. There was no return either. Right. So that's that's like just sitting in cash. Um, do you do you guys still get pitched these? Not much anymore. I don't think so. I, you know, I don't think so. My, I was about to say, like, my inbox is so freaking flooded with pitches that I can't even discern which is which. I feel like all what. the pitches these days are private equity and ESG stuff. Yeah. Right. One of those. One of those going to have a moment like this. <laughs> Eventually, I but, don't know when. But if you're going to take those illiquid risks that you get in a hedge fund, I know liquid alts are, have liquidity. But if you're taking illiquidity risk in like a hedge fund, why wouldn't you just go to private equity? What do the liquid alts people pivot to now that ESG? I think Michael's right. It's right. I think so. So they like remake themselves as ESG because they can get in front of new advisors that just haven't heard of them before. It's funny because the bear market didn't last long enough last year for them to show, okay, these liquid alts, look at how they did. Now you need to be in this. It, it, it was way too quick. So we're going to talk about ETFs and the fact that we're back to the too many ETFs thing. Nah, it's it's this is this is never going to peak. We're, this this chart is going in one direction and it will continue to. So Ryan Curlin did this thread. Ryan Curlin chart from, on from, from from Alpha Architect. Tweet um, tweet on. As the cost to launch an ETF goes down, more ETFs come to market. And no, it's not a bubble. Think of it this way: it costs you if it costs you zero dollars to launch and run an ETF. How many new ETFs would come to market? A lot, a lot, a lot. If it was ten k per year to run an ETF, a lot of people would decide to launch a fund of their own. And why not? You have upside of your, if your strategy gathers. AUM and you have a break even point uh, at about a million dollars. So to conclude, Ryan said, cost of ETF launches are coming down. Raise your prediction for how many ETFs are going to be listed 10 years from now. It's going to be an absurdly high number. I completely, look at this chart. What is, wait, Mike, what, what? is what is the cost? Like, because th- there are hurdles. Well, isn't it just, well, also, the cost to set up is the first one, right? And each one after that, you have scale and it doesn't yeah, cost as much. Yeah, think about firms like Alpha Architect that are now doing launches for other firms. They already have economies of scale. So I think that they've already laid the groundwork. And for somebody to come in with an idea to them, I think the fees are getting lower and lower and lower and lower. You the can other take side shots of, on stuff. Why not? That's what Ryan's saying. Yeah, on the other side of this is a lot of these will fail and then they'll try new ones. For sure. Yeah, so you like can- it happens with mutual funds. Yeah. You, could say yes, you could say yes to a lot more people as the costs come down and the ones that, so that was the point I was going to make is that we like 10 years ago, there were tons of ETFs being launched also. And people would say it's a bubble and they would cite the number of funds. But then anytime you looked at the dollar amounts in the funds, you realized this is one of the most concentrated industries on earth. Right. Nobody has assets. There's more ETFs and stocks. It was like, who gives? It was such an who irrelevant. Cares? They have no money in them. But the thing, you know what's interesting is this is the number of ETFs listed in the US by year. That is not new launches. So the number keeps going up and up and up. Now, the rate of change is slowing clearly, but it's not coming down. What What was like the percentage that was in the top 10 ETFs? It was like 85% or something. Like all the money was in GLD, SPY, QQQ. Like so you got a pie chart for that? Um, <laughs> no. So, well, that was uh, uh, Nate Karasi, I think, did one of those pie charts. And yeah, it's basically what you're describing. I don't know what the number is, but it's very top They were talking about zombie ETFs. Well, just and- think well, think about when crypto, when the first Bitcoin is, and they allow crypto to be an ETFs. Mm. There's going to be just so many of those that come out when they allow all those different tokens to have their own ETF. Everyone's going to shoot their shot. Everyone's going to try. and ben, try if, to, you, if you had to launch the, an ETF today, what would it be? Uh, Robinhood IPO shares, but you have to buy them at a premium over what I bought them at. We used to get pitched, uh, when is Red Holtz going to do ETFs? I was like, that's the worst f-ing idea I've ever heard. 
What would, it is. Because whatever we launch becomes our track record. Right. Even if we do something super niche and we're like, this should be 1% of your portfolio max, doesn't matter. That's your new ticker symbol. <laughs> like assuming the ticker is BRRY and then Barry basically has to live and die by how that ETF is doing on any given day. It's, a, like hor fun. it's a horrible idea. Uh, Meb has written about that. Just like once once you put out a product, it becomes what people think of you Meb, day to day. Meb crossed a billion dollars, right? Last year? Yeah. Well, he said he's gone up and passed it a few times because – Oh, he passed the yeah, yeah. Well, we look, Meb is uh, Cambria. We're we're big fans of Mebs. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with the number of launches. I think it's great for the industry that people are still willing to take risks. We would be complaining about the opposite if there weren't launches. We would be complaining about how Vanguard and iShare strangled innovation. So it's always going to be – somebody's always going to have a complaint about something. It's like IPOs. IPOs were dead in 2015 and now there's too many of them. Too many. Right. We didn't have enough companies going public. Now there are too many companies going public. It's, it's never going to be good enough for anyone. Uh, JP Morgan allowing crypto for financial advisors. It's a pretty big 180. When did this happen? It says last week. Okay. Jamie Dimon was pretty uh, – he, he, he's got some quotes that did not age well. He doesn't care about I'm, this I'm stuff. I'm not saying he does. Yeah. He, so he hates – but I guess – from his perspective, other people are doing it. It's gotten bigger. You have to be this in the game. This is a fall in line kind of thing. I, I think the other – I put this one in here. This is from last month that I don't think people made a big enough news about this. Interactive Brokers is going to offer crypto this by the end of the summer. If you remember, when, when the zero trading commission stuff happened, Robinhood had it forever. And Interactive Brokers was the first one to say, we're going to offer it on our platform. And then everyone else fell in line after them. Charles Schwab, TD. Mm. I think we could see a similar thing with crypto where Interactive Broker offers it and then all the other brokerages say, all right, we're on, the, we're on board. Fidelity. It's inevitable. Charles Schwab. It's inevitable. Key. So yes. this, this is Reuters. JP Morgan will allow all of its wealth management clients access to cryptocurrency funds. So this is like, I guess, Osprey Bitcoin Trust, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, uh, and I guess uh, Bitwise is the third one that, that exists. The bank told financial advisors in a memo earlier this week to take buy and sell orders from its wealth management clients for five cryptocurrency products. So it's they're not recommending it, but they're able to take buy and sell orders and let their clients decide they want to do that. Advisors are allowed to execute only unsolicited crypto trades, uh, adding that advisors hey. cannot recommend products, but only buy and sell. Unsolicited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I mean, we're just, we're past the point where you can, like a few years ago, advisors were basically ignore it and it'll go away. Yeah. yeah, you're past that point now where people can ignore it and tell their clients like, no, you're an idiot, never own crypto. You can't do that anymore. I know there's advisors who still feel that way, but you just, you can't. Well, the brokerage firms had this issue with the double and triple levered ETFs where they said, okay, these can be unsolicited orders only. And a lot of commission-based brokers were like, yeah, sure, no problem. I'll get my client to sign off on that. And that, that, didn't, that didn't go well. And that's probably about the same amount of volatility as any of these crypto funds have today. Give or I think Bitcoin is 4x more volatile than the S&P. So it, if anything, it's more volatile than a triple levered. But again, this comes down to JP Morgan doesn't want to have to tell a financial advisor that they have to say no to a wealthy person who wants to f around with this stuff. So I think we'll, I think it's a, it's a gateway and we'll see more, more adoption, not less. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think this is inevitable. As well. You think the other large brokerage firms like Merrill, like they all have to eventually do this. And their yeah. their models pretty soon are gonna sit they're gonna start with like a one percent position. 
they're going to say, well, all our models are going to have a 1% position in Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever it is. That's going to happen. If Bitcoin rallies back towards 60,000, I would say that happens before the end of this year. That one of the one of the um, wealth management gigantic firms is going to like put that in their model, like Grayscale, you know, Osprey, whatever product they use. But they're going to be like, Bitcoin is a part of every portfolio. And uh, I, I don't think anybody will even be surprised when it happens. The best buy signal for Bitcoin is... When Michael and I slack each other, okay, it's going to twenty. <laughs> let's buy it when it's. Let's buy some more when it's twenty, and then it immediately goes from thirty to forty. You'll ne- right, you'll never see that twenty. Um, on ramp is kind of attacking this from the software side, and we're friends with those guys. Shout out to uh, Tyrone and uh, Justin and everybody working at On Ramp. So we did something with them that is really not that big of a deal, but we basically said, okay, we're going to use your software so that our advisors can view the people, the clients who have crypto held away from us. How even does that work? Oh, it's very simple. We get the client, first name, last name, phone number, and email, and they get an email, and I think Stripe ports their Coinbase Gemini. What are you laughing at? Sorry, that's a curb episode. <laughs> what? Look at the ring you left on the table. It's not you a didn't... ring. It's more like a puddle. Yeah, well, this is very... a curb episode. I was, I was raised in a barn. That's very unlike you. <laughs> he didn't He didn't have a coaster. It's not like me. And Michael Duncan, just do we Josh... have paper towels in the studio? Use that fiat. Use that fiat. There's a $5 bill on the table. Duncan, throw me that that worthless $5 bill. I can get a paper towel. Throw me that non-blockchain traded currency. So so then what happens? So the client gives us permission to see it? So now we can see it. We theoretically can execute on their behalf. We're not doing that yet. Um, But the same way that we report on outside holdings, privately held real estate or assets that we're not managing on, we are reporting this. As if it's part of a financial plan, because it should be. Yeah, so you can incorporate it in the plan now. So, yeah, so we're not giving, obviously, we're not giving price targets or telling people what to do with it. But hopefully one day, our financial planning software, Orion, will incorporate that into their software yeah. so that we can build this into the portfolio. Yeah, and there are people who say, hey, I've got these holdings. I bought it a few years ago, or I just bought some this year. I just want to see what it looks like in the context of my portfolio. Well, let me ask. And right. or and or a client could say to us, "Hey, listen, guys, I want my I want to have two percent of my portfolio in, in crypto, and I want you guys to do the rebalancing for me. So every time it goes up to sixty thousand, and it's five percent of my portfolio, trim some. If it goes down to, to eight thousand, I want and to honestly, buy some. Honestly, that's that's the best explanation for an advisor is showing someone how a volatile asset, if in the context of a portfolio, can be rebalanced. Because if this thing is going to shoot up really quick and fall really quick in these huge moves. For rebalancing purposes in a diversified portfolio, that's actually a really – that's important to have, right? But you can you can use that if you rebalance correctly. Okay. So now what happens when a client says to us, okay, I have – I you know, I bought Bitcoin at $1,000 a coin and I have millions worth of Bitcoin and I really only have a million in my other investable assets. Like my whole portfolio is Bitcoin and I'm comfortable selling some, you know, based on your advice. But like – what do you do in that situation? Like, do you radically change the way that you're investing their other assets here based on how much volatility they're getting from that other asset class? Or do you do you really try to give them advice and talk them out of holding so much? I would I, At this point, I would keep them separate and act as if – I don't believe this to be the case, but act as if Bitcoin could go to zero. I mean – Well, that's when you help tax manage it, it too, right? It would have a huge impact on someone's life if it did. Like, do you take less risk in the stocks and bonds as a result of that? I don't think so. You don't. I don't. Don't you think we're past the point, though, of saying, 
only put money in that you are comfortable seeing disappear. Yeah, yeah. listen, I don't think I don't think it's going to zero. It's not, we it's own not. it. I mean, I'm I'm far past that. I'm just I'm just saying for the purposes of financial planning, I would be very uh, careful with how I projected that into the future. That's all. So and and listen, I'm not a financial planner, so I don't yeah, know. I think it's like inching along away from that that concept. Like only put money in that could go to zero. I don't think anyone's really saying that anymore. It's like too established. Too many important people are now very invested in this not but, but going to zero. I, but, but I do think it's a good like mental framework, like only put in what you're willing, willing to lose. You know, I don't think it's going to zero either, but I just think it's like a decent, it's a decent starting point. To we calibrate. all know that fiat is what's going to zero. That's obvious. <laughs> Obviously yeah. it's been, it's been trending towards zero. It's its entire life. Uh, the U S dollar. So advisors that now incorporate this into their practice using on ramp, or if they're at JP Morgan using um, a publicly traded trust, you know, pretend ETF, they do have to get more uh, – they have to get more fluent in the vernacular to talk to these clients that are involved because the clients who own this stuff are reading about it voraciously. Well, I, I think it's really tough. Like Ben and I – we spend – and you, we spend a lot of time trying to stay up to date and read and learn. But it's very likely that the client that owns like a million dollars in Bitcoin is going to know way more than their advisor. So it's the advisor's job not to like just necessarily uh, advise, but to report and to incorporate it into the plan. I also think they're going to have and very, tax manage it. I also think the client that has a million dollars or more in crypto is going to be very extreme in their point of view about it. Like I don't no. think it's casual situation. Well, isn't it the advisor's job too? Like there's a lot of sharks in the sea. Like there's a lot of charlatans in this space to like help them figure out like are are your sources of information actually helping you? Or are they just trying to gaslight and get? You up in arms and the problem with that though is a lot of the charlatans like really have made a ton of money. I know. In that's that's the the hardest part about this is you look at like people that in in a Wall Street context, you'd be like, that person is a ridiculous human being, but then they made like a billion dollars. So who, it's hard to, it's, who it's, the fuck are you to say right, you know? Right, so that right. that's very tough. The other thing is that a lot of the information sources and news agencies that are covering this stuff really just were invented out of thin air in the last two or three years. Who knows if some of these are disinformation ops coming from another country or if people are just making things up. Like no one's no one's vetting any of this. Infowars.com. But you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's very hard to even know, even if you're trying to know who to trust, where do you even begin in in that uh in that realm? So I think it's look, it, this is gonna be tough for advisors no matter what, because a lot of the things that you would say that are common sense and typically would be good advice, in reality could turn out to be bad advice because of the volatility and, and frankly, the upside that we've seen. Uh, let's go to European companies. Do they suck? Did Drew Dixon write this? He did. So there was an article. I like him. Th- th- yeah, Drew's great. This was an article in response to something I believe is when it was in The Economist. And I thought he made some some really good points that I never really thought about. And the, the point that he made was it's really a geography thing. So we're talking about like how, uh, well, we have all the great growth stocks, right? We have all the FANG stocks and, and Europe just doesn't. U.S. stocks beat beat the shit out of European stocks over the last 10 years. And, part, and one, of the, the, one of the big drivers is, is our FANG stocks. So Drew said that a lot of these technology stocks, they're clustered on the West Coast. And so these startups don't happen elsewhere. So uh, they don't happen to the same effect in London, Frankfurt, or Paris. But they also didn't happen to the same effect in Chicago, Miami, or Washington, D.C. This isn't something that is awful about Europe. It is something that is great about Silicon Valley. I thought that was a good point. He says there are nearly 57.5 million square miles of land on planet Earth. 
Google, Facebook, Apple, and Netflix are all within 40 minute miles of each other. So it's it, clustering is a factor. Here, here was another thing. He said, for every Procter & Gamble, there's a Unilever. For every Mondela, is a Nestle. For every Boeing, an Airbus. Every Nike, and Adidas. And he goes on and on. And point taken. I mean- All right. I think he's wrong. I read his piece. I liked it. And I like him. But I think he's wrong. I think there's, there's uh, issues of scale. And then there are cultural factors. And this is not to insult anybody. It's just a, a simple reality. Uh, they don't have the same risk-taking culture that we do, for better or for worse. So they tend to fall in line more and they tend not to be as entrepreneurial. Not every single person, but just generally speaking, like there's empirical data about this stuff. Um, but then here's another. But wait, hold on, hold on. Here's, here's a pushback. And I've written about this a million times. From 1970 to 2011, the U.S. and European uh, stocks had the exact same annual return. Yes. So what's your retort to that? No, my retort is right, the markets over the last 10 years and maybe for the next 10 years have much more heavily valued risk-taking. But did we get more ambitious in the last decade? I think Silicon Valley has, and it's gotten much more capital. So and I put the yeah, I, I put VGK, which is a Vanguard Europe fund, into this little Vanguard portfolio comparison and compared to the S&P. And if you look at the sectors, they're pretty much the same except technology. The U.S. has 25% of technology, which is really probably closer to 40. 40 if you, yeah, yeah. And Europe has 8.3. So Drew's other point, he wrote a follow-up piece to that about how cheap Europe should be. And this was really interesting. U.S. growth and Europe growth both trade at 33 times forward earnings. I thought that was very interesting. The difference between our markets, as Ben just mentioned, is they have way more value or cyclical-oriented stocks. I do and think that's why they trade at a discount. Josh's culture thing is – so I did a, a speech in Italy a number of years that ago. That was amazing. Remember Ben came out to like the rainbow and yeah, the yeah, smoke yeah, yeah. and yeah, here they, comes they made the sun. A cartoon You're huge in Italy <laughs> and that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. It was in like Milan and Rome. But they, they talked to me about these advisors and they said – Historically, people in Italy bought real estate yes. and government bonds, yes. and that's it. And they said once the government bond yields crashed there and the, we had the real estate bust, they had to learn about what risk-taking meant in stocks. And they were like, we need you to talk to them about the basics, like re like really— Why would you take a risk when cradle to grave, the social safety net is paying for everything, number one? Number two, if you're rich in Europe, it's probably because your great-grandparents were rich. They were dukes and duchesses, and they own real estate. That's the bit. That's what wealthy people in Europe historically have had, and most people obviously aren't wealthy, same as here. But I want to give you a structural uh, explanation that Drew did not get to, but that I think is very illustrative of why it's so hard for Europe to grow its own fangs. First of all, they'll strangle these things in the crib because they're very anti-monopolistic. Uh, unless the government owns a piece of it, like in, in Germany, the giant banks are okay because the government's very heavily invested there. But they're not exactly big fans of our tech giants. So we know they're not going to want to grow their own. Don't they find Google like every other week? Yeah, they find, they find yeah, Google they like it's it, – Google's just paying them taxes through fines at this point. Let me, let me tell you about the example of Spotify. So this is a, a perfect example why European markets haven't kept up and may not be able to in the future. This is a Swedish company. To go public, they did a direct listing on the New York Stock Exchange in 2018. They didn't list in Stockholm. And the reason why is, as a direct listing, they would have had to drop $26 billion worth of stock on that market, and that market can't support it. So that's, that's like a reason Spotify couldn't go public there, even if it wanted to at its size. So now, instead of SPOT appearing in a European index and contributing to the, to the gains, it's part of the Russell 1000. So it's a $41 billion technology market cap that doesn't exist there. It exists here. 
if that were in Europe, it would be a top 20 stock. Like it would be very important stock. And it would be like right behind Sanofi and, uh, and Allianz. And they just don't have those. So they have ASML and SAP are the only tech names in the top 20 MSCI Europe. And I agree that is like what's causing most of that differentiation over the last 10 years. I don't know what changes it. Like how does that all of a sudden reverse? Investor, dude, investors change their mind. Preferences change. They might not care about tech interest, companies interest anymore. Interest rates can rise and maybe higher cash flow companies overseas can do better. That's like not inconceivable. Uh, if they're higher cash flow and investors favor that factor for like a long period of time, you're right. I don't, I don't, I don't know what, what suddenly causes Basically that. Basically value outperforming growth. That's, that's what changes it. Yeah, and I, I don't think investors need to go all one way or the other. We actually saw international stocks be very correlated with the value rally in the early part of this year. So uh, until Bowen, until one of those value rallies has legs beyond a couple of months, it's, it's, I think it's just going to continue to be tough. Uh, all right. What, what's a, what all right. else? I want to talk about uh, paying off mortgages. Set the table. All right. So I had, a, I had a talk with Bill Sweet, our CFO, a few weeks ago. Now, I've, I've changed my mind on this a few times. So my first house... I refi my first mortgage was like six and a half percent. I got what, it. Like what year is this? Late two thousand seven, early two thousand eight. Which was great back then. And we got a great deal on a house because no one else wanted. They dropped the price like three times. But so I refinanced two or three times, and every time I refinanced, I just kept the same payment. So by the end of it, I'm paying like double payment, you know. And then we sold our house and got a new one. And I thought, well, that money didn't do any good except for a greater down payment in the next house. Um, how is that not good though? It gave it, it allowed you to upgrade. Yeah, it helped. But but I was thinking like, well, couldn't that money have been used somewhere else? I don't. Got it. Uh, so I've, I'm just saying, I've changed my mind. It's like at first I thought I'm going to pay this off as fast as I can. Now I've I've changed my thinking on this. And Bill Sweet told me a few weeks ago. He said, "I'm never paying my mortgage off. Mm. I'm if interest rates stay low, a big if. But if interest rates stay low, and I keep call it thirty to forty percent of equity in my home, and every." four or five years, I pay it off a little bit and then I do a cash out refi and I pay it off a little bit and I'm just staying in that sweet spot. And if on an after-tax basis, after-inflation basis at 3%, you're basically borrowing for nothing right now, right? I'm not taking into account taxes and all the other ancillary costs. Title insurance. You, so so <laughs> are you... Do you are you in favor of actively managed mortgages? That's, I'm saying... Is that what he's... So I'm saying housing prices... And obviously housing prices aren't going to keep going up this much, but if you've owned a house... In the last, if you bought even in the last eighteen months or something, you're sitting on some equity. All right, so you're you're talking about practice. Let me let me talk about the game. Okay, <laughs> I'm saying just I'm just saying why wouldn't you occasionally take money out of your house if you're if you're able to continue to what are you borrow doing with at the, rates? What are you doing with the money though? Wait, hang on. I am. So let me let me okay. jump in here. So this is yeah, th that's the other side of it. What are you going to do with the money? So I I hedge fund mortgage. No Dogecoin. Yeah, hedge fund mortgage. So I am. So my my home value, not to brag, went up about forty percent. Along with the rest of the country, over you smashed it over the last. I'm a, I'm great at timing the real estate market over the last two years. So as I'm trying to refinance, I'm saying to my guy, "Hey, wait a minute. Why not? Like this money was just created out of thin air, thanks to Jerome, thanks to Jerome Powell. Why not? What good does it do just sitting in the home? Give me the money. Give me the money, Lebowski. So I got the money. Uh, I ran the numbers with Bill, who is my financial planner, and. Uh, I've got to earn, I don't know if this is possible, if this is exact. So I wouldn't say I've, I have to beat a, a low single digit rate of return in order to break even, but it's more than that. Cause now I'm going from a 15 to a 30. 
I lower my monthly payment significantly if I want to. And if I want to continue to pay what I'm paying now, like Ben was doing with the double pay, I can do that. So will I be paying more over interest in the, over the life of the loan? Sure. But if to Ben's point, if we're actively managing our mortgage, then in five years, if the market you know, if I get some more principal, uh, more equity in my home, then I could do it again. Again, this is all assuming that rates. And stay I also low. think you have to either. There's like two things you can do with that money. One is fix up your house, like that's perfect for renovations. Why wouldn't you? Because you get a better tax break. Money on that. from the house put back into the house. Yeah. So we if you if you take a home equity yeah, credit and you use that to fix up your house, that that interest is money tax well, deductible and it's money well spent. And I think it is, especially if you're going to stay in your house and live mm. in it longer. Like, why wouldn't you? But there's a huge huge caveat here. You have to be financially responsible for this to yes. make sense. Because if you don't, if you're just taking the equity out of your house, because it's the best for savings mechanism and in the world, and then spending, and it. Then spending it to fund your lifestyle, yeah, you could yeah. royally f*** for, yourself. For a lot of people, a house is, like a house in social security is retirement for the majority of the country. Right. Yes. So you have to be responsible. You have to invest. Like if, if I'm just taking this money to spend it, to go on vacation, that's not a good use of this money. So you don't have to like have a smashing success with your returns, but you have to be, you know, funding your 401k and contributing to other accounts. You have to have good financial responsibility to do this. Yeah. If you're someone, but if you're someone like us, who's trying to optimize a lot of their finances and I'm a guy who like looks for the best rewards, credit cards and stuff. If you're that kind of person, and you're thinking about this, I think with rates being as low as they are, I think that dynamic of taking on debt and debt being the worst thing in the world, I think that's totally been flipped on its head by how low rates are. I love debt if it's at 2% or it's 3%. A, it's a way different so, story so if, even if before mortgage the, rates are 5%. Even before the pandemic, like we, ne we never had a mortgage. Uh, my wife's like, her father's like super conservative with money. He's a CPA. And just drilled it into her head. No debt. If you don't need debt, no he debt. He grew up in Germany in the 1930s. No, but he's like, that's, no, it's, it's actually, it's like old school Brooklyn mentality. Pay for shit with cash, no debt, no reason to have debt, formulate your lifestyle based on what you're bringing in and what you're saving. And that's it. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's probably a great thing. Um, a lot of our friends bought gigantic fucking houses like on the water. And we just like, we're like, that's not really our dream. To have a big have a big mortgage in our forties, right? So, but she was very wise about using the house at, to do exactly what you suggested: take money out in the form of a home equity line and do renovation because we're going to stay and just make our lives better. But do it at at a manageable size rather than be like. Hey, let me just take all the money out and find better places to invest it. We invested right back into the house. I don't think she would have let me do the same thing even to invest in my business. Like if I were like, hey, we're going to do this whole brand new thing at work and I got to put quarter million dollars in, I don't think she would have been down for it. But reinvest back in the house made a lot of sense to her. Yeah. And I think that's probably the conservative thing to do if you're going to pull the money out. So yeah, I completely changed my mind. I was So when I got my 15-year uh, refinance, I guess a year and a half ago at this point, I was super psyched. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to overpay my mortgage. I'm going to be done in 12 years. And like that thought was really appealing to me and, I, and it still is, but having the flexibility to borrow money at 3% is more appealing. Well, you are, and you're a landlord now too. So you have like other properties to- uh, All right, take it easy. Maintain. <laughs> no, you are though. Well, I've never said that publicly. I mean, I'm like intimidated by it, to be honest <laughs> Well, with. let's not, it's proper T, not proper T's. Yeah, it's proper T, yeah, geez. Well, start, <laughs> right? Everybody's I'm, 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 I'm building my portfolio. All right. <laughs> Here, I'm going to- Rockefeller started with one oil well. That's true. <laughs> All right. Since we're talking about mortgages, I'm going to steal the, the soapbox Do thing. Do it. Go. Because I, I want to stay with this. So- Take the initiative, Ben. I Yeah. Hey, I'm I'm not a friend. I'm part of the show. That's right. Um, I So you said, come up with something that people aren't talking about enough. I think 
speaking of these low rates, I don't think people are thinking through just how helpful long-term these low mortgage rates are going to be. So if you look at total U.S. household debt, $14.6 trillion. We have this chart, Duncan? Yeah, okay. it's, it's Y charts here. Uh, chart on. Chart on. Uh, mortgage debt is $10.2 trillion. So that's 70% roughly. And that, that relationship is pretty steady where mortgage debt is— How perfectly that tracks. Yeah, mortgage debt is roughly 70% of total U.S. household debt over most years. Um, hey, Josh, why are you surprised? It's, come on. So, all right, wait. So, time out for the people that aren't seeing the chart. So, U.S. household debt is fourteen point six trillion, and mortgage debt. Uh, what, and what, of that total, mortgage debt is ten. What's right. it? You said it's seventy percent. So seventy percent. Okay. What's the other? So, 4 student, trillion? student credit card, student cars. loans, and student loans is twenty or fifteen, and credit cards is the rest, and then auto loans, that sort of thing. All so right. it's. So I'm just saying, the majority for most people of debt is mortgage. Is the mortgage. Debt. Okay. So if you take that long term debt and put a much lower rate on it. That's not just a one-time savings. That's a savings. A that's a compounding savings and over how, the and years. And that's how the market overheats. We know where this is going. I'm just, I'm just saying, people eventually will adjust their lifestyle. But this is a savings that goes on for a long time. I don't think people are figuring out if you've refinanced or bought a new home at three percent, two and a half percent, whatever it is. That's a huge savings for a long, long time if you're locking in that debt. I don't think people have realized and how much that is. The home over sizes the are getting term. bigger. Yes. So they're so they're saving yeah. money on on what the mortgage would normally cost, and they have a higher quality yeah. of life given the average home size is increasing. And you're a hundred percent right to put this in soapbox because I don't read any articles about this. And this is why this is how Adobe gets to a trillion. And that's why Adobe could be the next trillion company. Uh no position in Adobe, by the way. I, I want to do this very quickly, but it, I feel like it needs to be said. And without getting political, do you guys agree with me that a lot of the people who refuse to wear a mask tend to be the same people who also refuse to get a vaccine? Or is that just in my head? It's, what the, do you same, think? No, it's the same exact thing. Definitely. That's not controversial. It's the same person. It is the same person, right? Of course. Okay. And they probably didn't vote for Biden. But uh, if you want the freedom to send your kids to school this fall— without masks on their face, which I think we all want, or maybe most of us want, like why wouldn't you just get the vaccine to do your part to help make that happen? Because I can see the writing on the wall already. My fucking kids going back to school with masks on, like I'm going to be very upset about it. Well, because they don't want people to tell them what to do. Okay, but like at a certain point, can you just get with the program and cooperate? Dude. I, the, alter the alternative is like kindergartners with masks on their face for another year. I got can we not twice. all agree that we should have, if we want some kind of freedom, let's all contribute and work toward it together. I'm just, I'm just amazed that we still have to have this discussion. I saw right before the show that Biden wants to federally give a hundred dollars to people for getting the, Great. the vaccine. Make it two hundred. Yeah, I'm, I'm a taxpayer. I'm paying for that. I'm fine with it. Let's just like, let's just get this done. It's going to have to come from the private sector, though. No one's going to this. The, the government getting into it is going to make it worse. So when Google make it more political, when Google says you have it's fine. Freedom. You want to work here. You have to get the vax. That's what it's going to have to be as companies. So our the biggest employer in Grand Rapids where I'm from is Spectrum Health. It's a big hospital system. They said yesterday it's for some reason these doctors and nurses aren't getting the vaccine as much. I don't even understand that. That that's mystifying to me. Me too. And they, they finally said, all right, some hospitals are saying you have to get it. Or you can't work here. And they're, they said they're going to wait for FDA approval. I keep hearing that. And I don't believe it. I, I don't know why the FDA wants they to take it. They had the, they had the, 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 the chief of the New York city fire department on, on our local Fox five, like affiliate, not Fox news, but like a Fox network. And I think it was Rosanna Scotto. 
was asking him, like, what is it going to take for your members to get vaccinated voluntarily? And he goes, FDA approval. And I'm like, really? Are you sure? That doesn't sound right. I know a lot of I know a lot of FDNY people throughout the course of my lifetime. I don't feel like that's what it is. Uh, I think that the misinformation is having a bigger really? impact than the FDA not formally doing. I guess we'll find out. Name three firefighters right now. I listen. I guess I guess we'll find out. Anyway, that's my soapbox, Mike. What do you got? Uh, I'm flat on the week. All right, sounds good. Uh, let's get into favorites. Did you guys watch the Woodstock '99 doc? Yes, I thought it was amazing. What did you think? Were you into it? Totally, super into it. I, so, did you go? By the way, no, I almost went. I'm surprised you that didn't does go. seem like something you would do. I wanted to go to the '94 one, which was amazing. By the way, so yeah, they I, spent five minutes on that during the doc. I was 14, and I don't really. I remember this being a thing. I don't remember hearing much about. I didn't know that this was like the fire festival. This was so much worse than the fire festival. Somebody died. Yeah. I don't think anyone died in the fire. I do festival. remember watching it, all the shows on MTV at the time. Yeah. So one of the, so first of all, Bill Simmons produced this. It was like a ringer films. And I hope they do more of this because they're really good at they it. They are. Okay. So this is part one, by the way, this is part one of six. Not that they're going to do five more on Woodstock, but they're doing five more documentaries. Well, it's called Music Box. Right. And it seems like they're going to do more music yep. stuff, which I, I'm all for. This was my generation. I was 23. And... One of the points they made in the doc, which I think is the most important point, is that this was a festival of 22-year-olds, mostly white males. Mm. These are people, they were born when I was born, the late 70s. They never had anything go on in their life that was, like, adverse. Like, they had nothing to fight for. Very different than 1969 when 22-year-olds were watching their peers come home in body bags. We just didn't – my generation just didn't have that. We had the bull market of the 80s and the 90s. Basically, 18 years of stock prices going up, full employment. So what were they rebelling against? Corporate? Yeah, they corp- had nothing to <laughs> this rebel is why against. No, corporate greed? Michael and I talked about this No, they're today. just spoiled assholes. Right. There, there's always going to be someone unhappy. Like right now, you could say is like a after going through the pandemic, like we've gotten things are pretty good and you can get a job and pay pays a lot more money and stock prices are up and house prices like and there's still going to be a lot of people unhappy. That's like the 90s right now. If you look back at it from our perch, like financially, the 90s were this glorious time, right? Yeah. Everything was fine. There were Yeah, there was no, the internet hadn't gotten terrible yet and yeah. people should have been happy and then they show all these people in 1999 who are angry. And, well, idyllic. First of all, it never feels like the good old days in real time. But second of all, these are these are an isolated, there was, the entire country wasn't upset. These were a, a group of young kids that were Well, so I'm, I'm a racist because I would say the scariest sight on earth to me is a group of drunk 22-year-old white kids. Like- What, today or back then? Period. Like that, like to me, that's who I'm, I am most afraid of college kids with nowhere to be a lot of, a lot of alcohol in their system in large numbers. This was like a million of them. So, and it was 110 degrees yeah, and they help. were charging $4 a bottle for water and the bathrooms didn't work that was gross. and they were there for three days. It's like, the what mu- do you think is going to happen? The music was weird. Like Limp Biscuit into Jewel, into Alanis, into Red Hot Chili Peppers. I hated Limp Biscuit. Well, that was one of the aggravating factors was that the way they booked the show, there wasn't a lot of variety. Like the one hip hop act they had was DMX. who uh, was like the Metallica of rap. Was like, Korn there? Korn was there. Puff Korn Daddy. was a big factor. Puff Daddy was there. I don't know if Duncan, performed. were you a big Corn guy back in the day? Limp Biscuit. No, no, not really. But I watched MTV like you all the time, and so yeah. I, they were tear. They were tearing apart a tower and crowd surfing on pieces of plywood, and like Fred Durst was like, "Yeah, that's that's cool." Like from the stage, so like they had a lot of encouragement. And what's funny is the fires broke out, 
during probably the most chill act. The, the Red Hot Chili Peppers on Sunday night is when they actually destroyed the whole the but whole place. Were they asked the Red Hot Chili Peppers to like calm down the crowd and they played Fire by Jimi Hendrix? Yeah, it was tasteful. Uh I I think I think what separated 94 from 99, the way they booked the acts for 94, they were paying homage, homage, homage. I do, I do homage. They, what do they, I do? It's very interchangeable. Homage. They were homage. they were trying to pay, pay their respects to the 69 festival. By having like Crosby, Stills, and Nash play or whatever, and '94 had amazing music. So they had so '94 had amazing music, but they had Boomers come back to relive Woodstock. None of that was going on five years later. They didn't was, book any throwback bands. '99 is the most garbage year in all of music because that's when like NSYNC and all the pop stuff come, comes on. Dude, right. So right. So I think I think there was just like this confluence of factors. The best part of the doc, though, um, and I fully approve of this, was them throwing shit at the MTV guys. I thought that uh, Kurt, was Kurt Loder there. Carson Daly. Oh, Carson Daly. Kurt, they said Kurt Loder was doing reports on TV like he was in Vietnam. <laughs> I forgot. I mean, you like how influential MTV was. It was it was everything. Like, uh, what was Carson Daly live? What was the show? Total Request Total, Live. Total, that was huge. TRL. Yeah. But they made the point that not for this audience. That was teenage girls. They were the girls. anti. Right. They hated it. This audience were the kids that felt betrayed by MTV because they turned it into Backstreet Boys. Right. 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 And, right. All right. Anyway, awesome doc. And we we don't have to talk about this. It, but, paired, it paired very nicely with the Fight Club rewatchable. Yeah. Uh, same same era. Oh, that 99. was another point they made. Matrix happened in '99. Fight Club. Fight Club. Columbine yeah. was earlier in the year. Yeah. There definitely was something in the in the air um, nationally. Uh, hundred foot wave on HBO. We don't need to talk about it now. Very heavy, heavily features uh, jet skis. So I, I definitely would highly. And you're a jet ski guy too, right? Yeah. But you're a lake jet lake ski guy. guy. Oh, there's a. You guys are ocean guys. I don't, I don't think this, this is this is the coastal elitism. You have any, wa- you have any waves on your lake? I don't think Ben can hang with us. I can, I can ride into Lake Michigan. There's waves on Lake Michigan. Can you Michigan. ride into the Atlantic Ocean with Michael and I? Riding in the ocean is terrible, though. Is it? You're. It was not fun. Right? It was, it was scary. Come on. Come on. You, okay, you can't open it up though on like the glassy lake. Correct. You can't. Yes, and just, I can. I just I rode to Fire Island. I rode to Fire Island yeah, from the, where I live. You have to pick the right spot to do that. The right day, the right conditions. You guys are coastal elitists. There we go. I'm, I'm gonna come tear your lake up like you've never seen. <laughs> do you remember right, wave race? Hundred foot wave is. What's that? Do you remember? Oh, was that a video game? The N64 game. Oh that yes, yeah, yeah. That was great. All right. Uh, who has favorites? All right. I love Bill Bill Walton. Non-ironically, like he was a huge part of my childhood. He was my favorite basketball commentator of all time. And I have, my dad got me uh, a Bill Walton Trailblazers jersey. And I'm actually, I wish I wore it today now that I think about it. Uh, I've never worn it in my life. Not because where am I going to wear it? It'd be kind of weird. And he also bought me a Bill Walton Celtics card with like his jersey patch on it. Okay. Like I truly love Bill Walton. I think he's an incredible person. And uh, I was like reminded of this because there's a there's another Ringer podcast called The Press Box with Brian Curtis, and David Halberstam wrote a book called Breaks of the Game, which I've never read. It's about the 7980 Trailblazers, and Bill Walton was obviously prominently featured. Supposedly in that. the best NBA book ever written. I've heard. Not surprising because really, I've heard that you've written some. You've read some of his books before. Yeah. The 50s by him is amazing. One of the, one Halberstam of the, died a couple of years died, ago. He died in a car crash. His book called The 50s is yeah. unbelievable. I have that. I never read it. But anyway, Bill Walton is such an inspiring 
beautiful person, and I'm not kidding. Like the way that he spoke about, so it was amazing. This guy, this guy just said, I, he, I guess he said, hi, Bill, good to see you. And Bill Walton spoke for 50 minutes. This guy didn't ask him a question until minute 50 of the podcast. And this guy has such, like the way that he speaks about respect for his parents, he calls his mother every night, she's 94 years old. He grew up, his, his mother was a librarian. I forget, his dad, dad was a music teacher. He never threw a ball with his father. I don't know how, so he he was his, he grew up with books and just so learned and he's a dead, like if I could go to dinner with one person in the world, I think it would be him. Really? Yeah. He's just a sunshine of joy and he's so learned. He's always in a good mood. He's just like a beautiful human being. And I mean that like very So sincerely. is that a watch or a listen? Listen. It, and I'm probably going to re-listen to it. It was so great. All right, I'm going to check that out. Ben, what do you got? All right. You said it. I, I want to plug the quarter app, Q-U-A-R-T-R. Michael and I have actually talked to the founders of this that are like we, hustlers we, in the best way possible. German. We invested. And German. We, Michael and I invested a Maybe little money. Maybe this will be the first worthwhile they're, European no, they're, technology they're, company. They're Swedish. And these guys are hustlers in the best way possible. Uh, they were offered some VC monies, and, and the guys like, we don't want VC money. The, these guys are great, and really, but so I'm I'm not as much of a stock guy like you, Josh. So I don't listen to quarterly, but they made it easy. So don't pigeonhole I, me. I listen. Well, <laughs> <laughs> they like they had Spotify and Shopify this week, and you can get on there and you hit a button and it goes right to the Q and A. So you skip over them reading all yes. the results, which I don't yes. care about. That was a like it's like the skip intro button. The PDF inside the app. Yeah, and but so listening to like the Spotify and Shopify CEOs, I think are the two most brilliant corporate Ch- leaders. Charismatic. So you get to hear them talk, yeah, yeah. and like a podcast, you can put it on two times speed and do it while you're working out or something. And and just this is something I never would listen to if it wasn't made easy for me. So yeah. the fact that they made this easy, I think is it's great. So check out it's it's on Android now too. Dude, I guess it's easier than listening to a podcast because. You don't get like all these choices when you open the app, like oh, yeah, put in your point. face. Yeah. You just put in the ticker and you're listening. And I love one touch button to get to the Q&A. So you don't have to listen to 20 minutes of boilerplate that like no longer matters. Like you really yes. just want to hear the analysts question them and them answer. And you could do like five of those in a row really easily. I'm going to do Amazon tonight, by the way, on the way home. And you get the PDF inside the app. Yeah, so the PDF of their presentation that has all the good charts and data. A transcript, too. Yeah, and the transcript. It's, yeah, it's so if good. you miss something or you want to see something written, you could find it. Um, one more thing. Uh, Ryan Reynolds was on Smartless this week. So Smartless is the one with Jason Bateman and Will Arnett and Sean Hayes. Uh, I'm a huge Ryan Reynolds fan. You really, I, you really are. I, but so he, he, he's the guy is hilarious. Platonic? The, I have a man crush on him. They, those guys are so. I think Will Arnett is like on the down low, one of the funniest guys there. Like they are so sharp. They're one liners yeah, to yeah, each other, right. back and forth, like zinging each other is great. But Ryan Reynolds also had like he was throwing out like uh, funny. inspirational stuff. He's he's hilarious. He's also a real. I guess he owns like a mobile phone company and a marketing company, and he's he's a really sharp guy. So. Ryan Reynolds on Smartless. So Smartless, a podcast. I never listened. To, I've heard of it. I never listened to it. They're still they're still at it. They have huge guests. It's just it, they, they bring all their friends on from Hollywood. So their guests every week are enormous. Like didn't LeBron that, and Clooney. Didn't that seem like something that was like for the pandemic and yes. then they would stop? But then they yes, just that's that, what I thought it was. Then they just sold it for 80? 60, 80 million dollars. <laughs> it's going to be exclusive to someone. I can't remember who. Un- unreal. All right, we'll check that one out. Great favorites, ben, guys. This was fun. Yeah, really good job. By the way, when I saw. You and Michael on Instagram taking pictures in front of Central Park horses and carriages. <laughs> I was, I was, you know what I, I haven't said? been in New York in a while. You know what I said to myself? First, I said, this is adorable. But then I said, oh man, Chris is going to be so jealous. <laughs> like, I hope Chris. I said to Chris, he gets very catty when Ben's in town. He really doesn't like it. So I said, I it's, hope. It's really going to be back in New York. What do, uh, what do, what do Courtney and Robin say 
uh, about you guys' relationship? Like, are they supportive? So, or? Corey and I were driving somewhere. Uh, we were driving up north. My parents live there uh, during the weekday yeah. a couple weeks ago. And Michael and I probably called each other six times on the three-hour drive. And she goes, do you guys do this all the time? <laughs> I said, yeah, okay, actually we do. When, when something, Michael, when something good happens to you, is Robin the first call these days or, probably, is, or is Ben? Probably Ben. <laughs> no, because when something good happens to me, it probably doesn't affect Robin like it affects I, Ben. I will, I will get the notification yeah. on Slack. Yeah. Ben gets the call <laughs> and Robin maybe overhears it. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, listen, I love uh, love seeing you guys reunited back together again. I know it's been a long time. Ben, you're going to come back more often this year than last year. Let's hope. And yes. uh, all right. Awesome. We loved having you. And guys, if this podcast isn't enough for you and you haven't checked out Animal Spirits yet, which I can't even imagine, but let's say you haven't, Animal Spirits is my personal favorite uh, investing podcast. And America's too, in many ways. Survey so, says. Survey so sure. every, you guys are every Monday and every Wednesday, Animal Spirits. So make sure you guys check that out. You can watch the full video of their Wednesday podcast on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the compound RWM for clips from this show and from Animal Spirits. All right. Thanks for uh, checking us out this week. We will see you as always next Friday. Have a great weekend. That was good. You guys didn't get too mushy with each other. So that, I, that's I, have what, I have a little tear. That was one of the things I was worried about, but it didn't happen. So That was f***ing good. Mm -hmm. Yeah? All right. You ready? Okay. Good dress rehearsal, right? <laughs> Thanks again to our sponsor, Masterworks. Go to masterworks.io slash compound for more information.